0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. And uh, welcome to The Weeds. Um, I'm at Vox's Policy Podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined as usual by, by Sarah Cliff and uh, Ezra Klein. Good morning. Uh, yes, good morning. Um den, as they say. Um, I think as we say now. Yes, as we say um, here. Uh, no. So, you know, we, we, we want to talk about some weedsy matters, some policy matters, uh, possibly uh, even some exciting uh, research. But uh, I'm showing off my like dozen Russian words that I know uh, because, of course, uh, Russia is back in the news.
1: So Russia is back in the news. So we are speaking on Wednesday morning and overnight at 921 p.m., uh <laughs> Uh, we're we're getting to that point in in a story where you begin like noting dates and times because things are moving so quickly. But but as I read at nine twenty one p.m., the New York Times posted a, a really blockbuster story, alleging that contacts between Trump land I think is the right way to put this. It isn't just the Trump campaign, but Trump land and known Russian intelligence officers were much more extensive than has previously been reported. And this, by the way, not just than has previously been reported, but this directly contradicts things that Sean Spicer has said. This is a very big change in the story. This, of course, comes on the heels of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn resigning over lying to Mike Pence, we think over whether he discussed sanctions with the Russian ambassador shortly after after the election but i want to read a couple of quotes from this new york times story because the story itself Because the issue is complex and we don't know everything, the story is complex and has a lot of nuance and I want to make sure we capture some of that. So the key paragraph here is that American law enforcement and intelligence agencies intercepted the communications around the same time they were discovering evidence that Russia was trying to disrupt the presidential election by hacking into the DNC. So it's important to say – Law enforcement had this knowledge for a long time. They had it during the campaign. They had it when James Comey came out and said he was semi-reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. doesn't appear to have come out. Um, this seems to be what Harry Reid was talking about when he sent a letter to James Comey in October saying Comey was sitting on explosive information about Russia and Trump. Um, Anyway, the report continues, the intelligence agencies then sought to learn whether the Trump campaign was colluding with the Russians on the hacking or other efforts to influence the election. The officials interviewed in recent weeks said that so far they have seen no evidence of such cooperation. And I think this is important to just make sure, sure we get right. What we have right now is evidence that was found during surveillance of known foreign intelligence officers, right? So what 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 the US government is doing was surveilling people they typically surveil in Russia to keep an eye on them. In the course of surveilling those Russian folks, they found that a bunch of Trump people, Trump business associates, including Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, Carter Page, were in touch with them. Right now, we don't know what those contacts were. It's not even clear if the FBI or the CIA knows what those contacts were. It's possible they have records that the calls happened but don't actually have the calls themselves. But there there's a lot of strange contact. It was found by keeping an eye on the people you normally keep an eye on. And it, it's worth noting, Paul Manafort had to resign from the campaign. It was a little bit mysterious why that happened. Michael Flynn has now resigned. Paul Manafort is in the New York Times story with this hilarious Carter, quote. Carter
0: Page also resigned so heavily that Donald Trump has begun saying that he was never part of the campaign.
1: So there you go. Paul Manafort, the former Trump campaign manager, has this insane quote in the story where he said he, – he denies everything. He said, it's absurd. I have no idea what it's referring to. <laughs> but then he said, it's not like these people wear badges and say, I'm a Russian intelligence officer. So that's not um, exactly comforting. So there's a lot going on here. This story is now being followed up by reporting the Washington Post at CNN. Uh, House Republicans continue to basically say they have no interest in investigating anything, but that is cracking among Senate Republicans. The Intelligence Committee in the Senate, which is led by Richard Burr and the the top Democrat on it is Senator Mark Warner. They are saying that they are going to do a full investigation here. They want Flynn to come in and testify before their committee. So you're beginning to see a move towards congressional investigation. This is very big, and and it's very big in a way where – People don't really know what's going on and don't know where it can lead. But the range of possible outcomes here is almost – it's almost too large to stare at without having to turn away.
2: Can you – so like what do we feel like is the range right now? Because it feels like it can like range from like you know that whole dossier we were talking about a few months ago, that proving true to like these being – it feels hard to see the range of inconsequential at this point. But I'm curious like how you think of like –
1: I don't think of inco- on the I don't range. think there's inconsequential anywhere in this range. I think one question is what kinds of information do we actually have and what kinds of information are we actually able to get? So there's a, a version here where what the FBI knows is that Carter Page and Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn and maybe a couple other people placed calls to known members of the Russian intelligence service. But they don't know what were in those calls. They don't know what were said on those calls. Those guys are not on the campaign anymore. And so maybe this – knocks a couple other people down for lying or, you know, it makes Trump look bad. But there, there's not enough information that comes forward after this for, for anything to go on. Then there's a possibility that we actually do learn a lot. By the way, it's worth noting that the top Russian government officials during the campaign said, yeah, we know all these Trump guys. We're talking to them and Trump at, during the time denied it. But clearly he was lying about that or seems to – whether he knew it, I guess we don't know. But, but that does not seem to have been an accurate denial. Um, then if we're able to get a lot of information – I have been very, very skeptical of – I know a lot of smart people who are saying, oh, Trump doesn't make it two years. This is all going to collapse in scandal. I have been very skeptical of that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that I think I think impeachment is on the table. I don't, particularly not given the evident uh, inclinations of House Republicans on this. But this seems to be a scandal that its, it's potential limit is unknown. It's a scandal that could be at impeachment level in a normal political scenario. You could certainly imagine it leading to Democrats taking the House in 2018 and then an insane series of investigations kicking off that that, that really could go anywhere. This is bad. This isn't normal. This isn't what we normally see in an administration. This is something different.
2: Well, and one other different factor at play is like The question you're touching on, like, where will investigation go? Rand Paul earlier today said something to the effect of, well, why are we going to spend time investigating our own party when we have really important policy priorities like repealing Obamacare? Which was it was an odd frame, I thought, to put on, like, how to choose what the Senate does. But that also strikes me as another big unknown here. Right. Like what Senate Republicans, what House Republicans decide their priorities are because you could see a lot of the information like you're saying, build Ezra. But whether that information actually comes out probably relies a lot on like if the Senate, if Republicans stick with that Rand Paul thinking that he talked about today saying, you know what, we have other fish to fry. We're, we're going to kind of not investigate our own parties. We can try and repeal Obamacare and do these other things that we want to do, which I think would really shape how this all plays out. I think it's also worth, well,
0: because because this is the weeds, um, talking about the sort of history of the legal framework in which investigations happen. Right. So after Watergate, after Richard Nixon's resignation, particularly after the 1974 midterms, you have these incredibly large Democratic Party majorities in Congress. Um, this very weakened President Gerald Ford, who was unusual because he had never even run for vice president. Um, so just a series of scandals that had elevated Ford, big new Democratic majority majority. Uh, low level of ideological polarization, uh, scandal on the front burner. And so they created this new framework, the independent counsel framework, in which uh, the attorney general could be asked uh, to appoint an independent counsel who would have separate funding, operate outside of the Justice Department chain of command, and could investigate executive branch scandals. Uh, So that was set up under Ford. It was used under Carter in, I think, a relatively minor way to look at the question of uh, whether some White House officials had been involved in using cocaine or something like that. Uh, But then it was in the Reagan administration got its first real field test as part of the Iran-Contra scandal. And there was an independent prosecutor for that, a big investigation An investigation that ended with a number of senior officials being convicted, but not of underlying wrongdoing. They were all convicted of sort of cover up type things, lying to investigators, obstruction of justice, that kind of thing. Uh, The independent counsel had clearly hoped to get them to flip on Reagan himself. That didn't happen. George H.W. Bush was elected president. He pardoned the high level offenders, and you end with a deadlock where Democrats felt that the pardons and a cover-up had sort of let Reagan get away with it, and Republicans felt that what happened was was the independent prosecutor sort of went off his leash and, having investigated the underlying crime, started just trying to jam up senior officials. Right then, Bill Clinton is president. There's a question about an old land deal that happened when he was governor of Arkansas, Whitewater. Um, an independent prosecutor is appointed for that. And and the independent prosecutor, again, he, he investigates the land deal. Nobody is convicted of that. But in the course of asking questions of Arkansas politicians, you get some people on obstruction, false statements to investigators. And the investigation just keeps rolling and it becomes an investigation about whatever. And it becomes an investigation into whether Bill Clinton made false statements in a deposition at the Paula Jones lawsuit. Um, and Bill Clinton winds up being impeached over this. So then the authorization for, for this independent counsel expires early in the George W. Bush administration. And both parties sort of feel like they've been burned by these like open-ended investigations and we're going to close the door on it. Um, so we don't have that mechanism anymore, right? So we're back to the pre-Watergate era mechanism in which you are relying on either the attorney general – Wants to preserve his own independent reputation and says, "Okay, I'm going to, you know, step aside and let so-and-so run this or on Congress to say we're going to stand up and we're going to investigate this. Uh, But we have right now is a Congress that's under Republican Party lockdown. We have an attorney general who – I don't know what you want to say about Jeff Sessions. Um, He has no independent legal reputation of his own to protect is one thing to say. And even as a political reputation, right, it is extremely unlikely. Republicans all back Jeff Sessions for the attorney general job. They like him well enough. He's a colleague of theirs in the Senate. But. Um, I think it's far-fetched to imagine that President Mike Pence or President Marco Rubio would have appointed Jeff Sessions attorney general if only because they wouldn't have wanted to relitigate the question of is Jeff Sessions a longtime white supremacist. Donald Trump was very happy to do that. Uh, he's very close to Sessions. Sessions indicated that – Unlike uh, who was it? L- Loretta Lynch, you know, said she was going to recuse herself from the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Uh, Jeff Sessions has made no such representations. Um, so I, I think it's, that's long and complicated, but I think it's important to get out on the table because you're going to start to see a lot of pushback against the leaking. Right, um which I, Donald Trump this morning? Donald already Trump already this morning did it. Um, Eli Lake did a version of it in in Bloomberg view. there was a There was a free beacon story that had a slightly loopy conspiracy theory about this, suggesting uh, Ben Rhodes was orchestrating it all from from behind the scenes. Um, but to understand the leaking, you have to understand this investigatory context, right? One reason the Attorney general might say. I'm going to recuse myself from this. I'm going to fully empower a deputy attorney general whose name I forget, but is a career prosecutor guy, um, a kind of conservative law and order guy, but not like a specifically Donald Trump crony, is that if you did that, then you could say to law enforcement personnel who've been working on this, like, look, guys, like you got to play it by the book. You know, you got to do this stuff. You got to run it up the chain. You can't be telling tales out of school you know you can't leak partial information but when you don't have a credible investigatory path you know you put people in a difficult position right i mean leaking information including leaking partial information to the press is a good way of making sure that political officials don't shut down an investigation um And, you know, that's what we're seeing here, right? I mean, I think nobody could say that what is happening here is that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have over the past two years – demonstrated a strong desire to really get to the bottom of what's up with Donald Trump and the Russian intelligence services. Um, Certainly, Jeff Sessions has given no indication that he wants to do that. And none of them have set up any kind of structures that would kind of take themselves out of the loop. So people are going to feel that they have to leak things to to keep things going.
1: Right. And I think what is I think all that is correct. There's, by the way, a lot of criticism of Barack Obama, right now, who could have appointed a special prosecutor on his way out the door and did not. Right, right. He knew about this. There's a, a famous meeting between him and Mitch McConnell, where McConnell says, "If you make this a partisan issue, if you if you make this an issue, I will make it a partisan issue." Obama backs down, but even after the election, does not appoint a special prosecutor, does not set up any framework for this to go on. And and you can, to some degree, understand what Obama is thinking. Does not want that to be viewed at the end of his legacy as like a, a an effort to destroy the next president. But I'm not sure that move will look good in history. So you have, as you say, Matt, the, the primary defense of the investigation, because these investigations are ongoing in the intelligence services, is coming from a bureaucracy that is leaking things primarily to the Washington Post, to, to the New York Times and to CNN, right? Organizations that have very, very strong intelligence reporting traditions and, and personnel. But what is a big unknown here? Is it – now you imagine what the Trump administration is thinking and the Trump administration's problem as they see it and you you saw this on Trump's Twitter feed today. The Trump administration's problem is not this Russia stuff which I think like what Bill Clinton thought was Whitewater is was bullshit and he wanted to get cleared of it. Whether it's right or wrong, I, I don't know but I think that's what he thought. Um, Trump, I think there, there's clearly smoke and fire here. There's a, There's a lot going on here. His problem is of the bureaucracy. His problem is how does he muzzle a bureaucracy that he in theory controls but because of civil service protections does not have as much power over as he wants. But he has Mike Pompeo at CIA. Comey is remaining at FBI. Comey is an interesting player here too because Comey really shot his reputation as shit at the end of the election. This may be to some degree an an opportunity for – him to you know, go down as somebody who played it more straight if he's, if he's able to protect these kinds of investigations. Um, you obviously have uh, Jeff Sessions, an at attorney general, as you mentioned. But the thing the Trump administration is trying to figure out how to do is try to get the government from investigating them. I don't really know what powers they have over that. I don't really know how easy or hard it is to foil or staunch one of these investigations. Again, I think the fact that Comey is being kept on is an interesting wrinkle to all this because he – clearly, the FBI is not stopped. Um, Or that maybe the leaks are because they're worried they'll stop. But that is – to Sarah's earlier question of where does this go from here, the really crucial question is given this is happening within the chain of command inside the federal government. It's not happening in a new place set up for it. And given that that chain of command ultimately reports up to folks, Trump is either hired or is keeping on. And given that Trump has been very clear and has written extremely clearly on, on Twitter that the problem in government right now is leaking from the NSA and CIA what happens next how does how do they try to crack down on that how do they try to stop these investigations
0: if you're anything like me, you know sometimes you want a snack, and if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're gonna eat junk food, and it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great, and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some you know slightly more indulgent pretzly things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. NatureBox.com slash weeds.
2: Well, I think this speaks to like a theme we've kind of hit on a few times uh, on the weeds about the size of bureaucracy and the sprawlingness of bureaucracy and the difficulty of controlling that. I think one question I had going into the Trump administration, one question I still have, what happens to all these people who who were there, who went through the transition? Um, I very anecdotally have heard from a number of people who I know lean left or like not happy, but are still there. And I think that's a tough population to control. I think at the very top levels it's a little easier to get a grasp around it. But what we're seeing with all these leaks is that so far these people are not um you know, scared to give this information to the Washington Post, the New York Times, someone somewhere has decided it is good if this information comes out. But it seems like there's a limit to how far leak. I Well, I guess the question I have right now is like, how far can leaking go without some kind of assist from congressional Republicans? Well,
1: that's why I think what's happening in the Senate is really important right now, though. So so House Republicans are completely, I mean, they have just said, uh, Speaker Ryan yesterday said... I might mangle this quote and paraphrase, but he said, I'm going to leave it to the White House to explain what happened with Flynn. That is not what you want to hear. Uh, There there have been another other statements from the relevant House Republicans charged with investigative power. Jason Chaffetz does not seem Yeah, How do you say it? Nunez Nunes?
2: I think it's Nunes. Nunes. Nunes.
1: Um, Nunes. He runs the intelligence committee. He is not interested in investigating this, at least as of yet. But there was a real crack in the Senate Republicans and Mitch McConnell, the Senate leadership, Mitch McConnell, Blunt, Cornyn, they have said this really does need to be investigated now. And then Burr, who's running the intelligence agency – intelligence committee, I'm sorry. (laughs) he has come out, and he and Mark Warner, the the ranking Democrat, have made a joint statement. They are they are currently at this moment working in lockstep together. Burr is known as more of an institutionalist; he's a more moderate guy. He comes from a state where he had a tough reelection race. I mean, he's not up for a long time now, but it, North Carolina is not a you know dark red state. So I, I completely think you're right, but the Senate seems to me to be traveling down a different pathway than the House. So the the Rand Paul statement, you. Um, offered up, it's embarrassing, and and Rand Paul should be embarrassed for saying that. That 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 is an appalling way to see his institutional duty, but it is increasingly less representative, as far as I can tell, of, of what's happening there. Well, I think like, now the question yeah. then is like, what happens next? Right. Do they do they want to run a real investigation? But it feels or not?
2: like a bit of a familiar break that we've seen on like other issues from Senate Republicans, from like the more right wing, like like Rand Paul, for example, who doesn't want to get into this, who like is lockstep on like repealing Obamacare and this kind of split between traditionalist people who have been there for a long time and versus like the more freedom caucus wing of the party that also seems to be the wing that is lining up less interested in this kind of investigation. And I think these are like fault lines we've seen a lot on entitlement issues that might in a weird way like also start emerging on... Um, on issues of like whether we investigate or not.
1: One thing, one thing I think is interesting about that that does separate out the House and the Senate is that in, in ways I don't fully understand. The Senate is the seat of neoconservatism in the Republican Party too. And the Senate has a couple extremely powerful Republican members who really, 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 really hate Russia. And in a way like what Rand Paul cares about in life. is shrinking the size of the federal government, right? He cares about repealing Obamacare. He cares about cutting the budget. Whether you think it's good or bad, that's just – that is his animating passion. It's why he's here. John McCain and Lindsey Graham uh, really, really care about Russia. Marco Rubio has sort of become part of that neocon caucus and has very, very strong views on Russia. He ended up rolling over on the vote but was extremely rough on Rex Tillerson during the the confirmation hearings. … Mitch McConnell has been extremely retiring on all kinds of things Donald Trump has said with the sort of exception being Russia where he has been very dismissive of Trump's arguments and has said, I believe that Trump, like other presidents, is going to come in and find out that Russia is not our friend. It is our enemy. And so one thing that I do think is happening sort of interesting in the Senate is you have a bunch of people who take the issue of sort of Russian power, Russian interference in America, American elections more seriously and so um have a little bit more ideological interest in just what is happening here.
0: Well, I mean, this is where I, I go back to the um, you know, different investigative frameworks, right? Because in 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 ye old special prosecutor days, like what you or independent counsel days, you would have an independent counsel. The independent counsel would start looking at Flynn, Carter Page, Roger Stone, people who are at the center of the Russia story, but a little bit on the edges of like currently existing Trump world. And then what the independent council would do is like try to get them to implicate other people, try to get them to cough up financial documents. And it would like become a whole thing, right, where you start pulling at right. the sweater. And we know, right, I have no idea what Donald Trump is hiding in his tax returns. But like, it's something. It's something illegal. It's something embarrassing. I mean, it is it is something, right? Something
1: Russian potentially.
0: And if I just did not like Donald Trump, I would use Russia or anything else as just a way in to like try to cough up financial disclosure from Donald Trump. Uh, but we're not in that world. We're in a Senate world. John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, uh, to an extent Mitch McConnell, um, to an extent Richard Burr. Those guys care about the policy issue here, which is like will Donald Trump – uh, lift sanctions on Russia? Will Donald Trump send weapons to the Ukrainian government? Will Donald Trump maintain a forward basing of U.S. soldiers in the Baltic states? And so one, I think, plausible outcome here is that the threat of an investigation is used not to thoroughly investigate Donald Trump, but to Force donald trump like michael flynn stepping down is the first step in a pivot of the trump administration's russia policy back to conventional republican party russia policy right that a, a trade that i think john mccain lindsey graham marco rubio are gonna feel really happy with is like trump uh replaces flynn with this other admiral who's like buddies with james mattis um trump you know reaffirms his commitment to NATO and basically Russia ends up getting like screwed here, right? Like they did all this work to try to get Donald Trump elected and then he completely turns on them uh, because he needs to, you know, get right with, with his own party's base there and Republicans continue to agree with Rand Paul that like actually doing the investigation like is counterproductive to all of their goals. So it it seems to me that that's a, that's a big difference whereas like if Democrats – ran the House, they would be using this to tear Trump down because the Russia thing on its own, it's a big deal, but it's like kind of abstract to people. But it's this like sore on the administration that if you wanted to tear him down, you could really pick at. But I think the Republicans who are Russia hawks, they care about Russia, They but they still are going to want to prop Donald Trump up.
2: But I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think there's a question of, like, how far you can get with the threat of investigation and not actual investigation. Because uh, all of this stuff, until we had all this reporting come out the past few days, like, this stuff was happening for, like, months. And I guess you can, like, raise a specter of investigation every now and then to kind of, like, keep it at bay. But it seems, I don't know, it seems, like, hard to prevent if you're not actually, like, going to go that far, that you could— have these people within Trump land who maybe like aren't as high profile as Flynn but are still doing some of the things that they were able to do for, for a number of months and still we started having all of these leaks. Um, I don't know. It seems hard to crack down on just with like – it's like the threat of investigation you're suggesting could could kind of help out, right? Or- well,
0: but I mean it's also like if you look at this weird Flynn story, right, Like, like one of the interesting things we see here is that like Mike Pence learned – that Flynn had lied to him, not from the White House counsel, who was told by Sally Yates, but from the Washington Post, right? Because there was a leak to the Post. And you can imagine – there's like a game, right? Like people don't – people who don't like Michael Flynn, they're like, first, let's tell the White House counsel. And they're going to just hope that the White House counsel takes care of this like gets rid of Flynn, something like that.
1: Also, you don't even have to premise they don't like Michael Flynn, right? They may like Michael Flynn fine, but actually think this is very bad. I just yeah, want to yeah, note that, right? I, I agree. I think there's been a pushback that this is all just like an anti-Flynn conspiracy theory. Michael Flynn appears to have called the Russian ambassador and tried to like talk through sanctions with him when he wasn't. Right. Like, it's, a, it's a violation of the law.
0: Sure, yes. So so, But I mean there's like levels of this, yeah, right? So it's definitely. like first you like you call Don McGahn and you're like, hey, man, you got a problem with Michael Flynn. And then you wait and then it becomes clear nothing is happening. The Trump administration is still saying this call never took place. So then you call The Washington Post and you're like, hey, man, there was this call. And then you're hoping something will happen. But you see that they keep putting Sean Spicer out there to say stuff that's not true. Um, Their Kellyanne Conway is saying Michael Flynn has uh, the, the president has his full confidence in Michael Flynn. So then you need to come back with like another leak. Right. And now eventually, like, Flynn is dislodged. And I think part of the hope is that, you know, the Trump administration will get the message. Right. Trump's uh, ferocious pushback on Twitter this morning suggests to me that he has not gotten the message. But like getting the message would be to say, call in Mike Pompeo, call in James Mattis, call in Dan Coats, call in John McCain, call in Lindsey Graham, like have a meeting and be like, what do we have to do? To like put a stop to this. What do you guys want? And like, what am I willing to give you? Like, how much does Donald Trump care about Michael Flynn? Obviously not at all, because Donald Trump doesn't care about anybody. How much does Donald Trump care about Donald Trump's eccentric views of Russia? I don't know, right? But you have to, like, put that stuff to the test. It certainly seems to me that if Trump thinks this through, he will recognize that having spent his entire career selling out everyone and everything all the time for personal gain, that, like, he's also going to sell out Vladimir Putin. But at the moment, he's a little – his Twitter feed seems caught in a like mental friend enemy zone where he's like bash John McCain a bunch of times and won't say that Vladimir Putin is a bad man. So there,
1: there's an interesting to, to your point about Trump psychology here. There's an interesting dimension to this that plays into a long time tendency of Trump's, and I think is actually a little bit true here, and and speaks to the point Sarah's making. Trump has always had this idea that the world is divided into winners and losers, and that. The more you're winning, the more you'll win. That there's just something about the momentum of winning. There's something about the momentum of stacking up victories. It's why he gets so upset by polls that make him look bad. It's why he gets so upset when people suggest that you know, he might lose or he, – he there's something to him about um, whether you are seen by the world's eyes as on the right side of that line. Then people want to do big deals with you. Then people want to help you out. They want to give you their endorsements. It's all – and it's all – I think it's overblown, but there's something true to it. What I think is very hard to predict here is what the momentum of this story ends up doing because these things take on a life and a power of their own. There's a a statement from Chuck Todd yesterday uh, on his MSNBC show that now is everywhere, that this is a category five hurricane, that this is going to shake everything in Washington. And when people begin talking like that, that – emboldens other actors and, and players to come into the game. So, I mean, leakers, for instance, are, are probably feeling pretty emboldened right now. But Senate Republicans are probably feeling at least somewhat emboldened right now. You begin to ask this question because they all know that Watergate happened, which – when the history is written, how do you want your role in it to be written? And, and that's something people care about. Now, they don't care about it until they think a history is going to be written. But once that happens, then you start caring. Right? You saw this during the campaign when things began to look very, very bad for Trump. All of a sudden, all these Republicans began hopping off the bandwagon. You know, Paul Ryan came out and said he wasn't going to campaign for Trump anymore, wasn't going to even try to defend him. Jason Chaffetz took back his endorsement. Then things turned around and they, they sort of got back on the bus. But, but this to me is, is the thing that, that becomes hard. We, if this story keeps gathering momentum – if the consensus becomes something is really wrong here, like something has really, really, really gone wrong, then you begin to get pressure from quarters you don't expect. Then new players enter into it both from within intelligence agencies but you talked about someone like General Mattis. What happens if Mattis resigns? Not that I think he's going to but if things get really big, Mattis is a Russia hawk. He doesn't like any of this. This makes him look terrible. He, what if he begins calling – members of the Senate on the Republican side and saying, listen, I can't go out and do this publicly but I'm telling you like we need to root this out of the administration. Like You trust me and you actually need to go hard on this. Like What then do Republicans on the intelligence agencies who think Mattis is the good guy in the Trump administration do? So I, I don't know. I am not predicting any of this. I want to be very careful about that. But there's a momentum and an energy developing around this story. There's a feeling of nobody knows what comes next. A book I would really recommend people read right now: Elizabeth Drew, um, long-time political journalist in Washington, covered Watergate, and she wrote a book called um, I think they're called the Watergate Journals, but I'm gonna just look up the name real quick. And the book is a really, really great book because unlike other books about Watergate, instead of telling the story is one story, right, looking back and reconstructing it once it's over, these are contemporaneous accounts. Um, She basically wrote these in real time of what everything felt like every week. And it's really fascinating to read that in in, in this context and just see how much confusion there was and how many different people were acting and trying to act and trying to figure out. Now, you can look at that and feel very pessimistic on where this goes. Probably Nixon survives Watergate if not having taped everything he ever said, which <laughs> is just a very strange um, fact of everything. But nevertheless, this – things do develop a um, a momentum and they do develop a situation where in, everybody's incentives begin to change because the future they're now trying to jockey for uh, – both prestige and power in begins to look different to them. I don't know when we get to that, but already Senate Republicans are in a very different place today than they were a week ago. The Trump administration looks different than it did a week ago. Things are changing in ways that would have seemed very unlikely just a couple, just 72 hours back.
2: Yeah, I do think one tension that pushes back on that, though, like I totally I agree with you that people start thinking about what side of history they want to be on.
1: Washington Journal is the name of the book.
2: Okay. Sorry. Um, no, no, no problem. Um, people start thinking about the side of history they want to be on but they also start thinking about the next election and like, do they want to run with the party whose president is under massive investigation for his ties to Russia? I think you're right. You did see moments in the campaign where people would distance themselves or legislators would distance themselves from Trump when things got bad. But, but you've also noticed that a lot of people can get by without doing that. I think it was pretty telling that when the travel ban was enacted, Republicans were pretty slow to put out statements on it. And a lot of legislators just never commented on it and got by without really saying anything was pretty notable. So I think, you know, people do think about like the long term, where is this going to go? But we've also seen like a willingness to kind of like when things die down to or to be like kind of OK with things dying down because, you know, they have their own electoral futures, like they have their own campaigns to run. They want to win reelection in 2018 or 2020. And I think that's a real thing that also is at play, and like also limits the interest in kind of going to Trump and saying like, "Hey, you have to stop this." Is it? It is in their political interest to have this stay small, to to like act in ways that that do not let this erupt. If they're a legislator who's thinking about election in the next like two to four years.
0: To pivot off this topic a little bit, I mean, I, I think the main thing you can see is that like what the median sort of Republican member of Congress would like is for this to go away and to focus on their pent-up agenda. Um, And something that's interesting is that this has been an exhausting month. It feels like so much has happened. Uh, My my friends and neighbors have have nothing but pity for the endless uh, journalism and weird hours and, and crazy news breaks. But when you step back and look,
1: can Not... we quickly say the the, Mil- the Stephen Miller quote because I think it's helpful here.
0: Yes. So Stephen Miller said that in just three weeks, well, he's a policy kind of. I don't know what his exact. It's
2: like a leading policy. Advisor. He's one of the I leading the policy, policy players, players. players. Yeah. He in said the Trump that in just three weeks,
0: the Trump administration has done more than most administrations do an entire term, um, which is that's laughable. Um, but Trump has done a lot less in his first month than. Barack Obama did in his first month, um, arguably less than Bill Clinton did in his first month. Um, probably more maybe or about the same as as George W. Bush. Um, but George W. Bush had the excuse that he um, didn't win the election until the middle of December. He got a slow start to his transition. He also had a literally 50-50 Senate in which Dick Cheney had to personally break any kinds of ties and you could filibuster nominees. And the norm against using budget reconciliation shenanigans was still pretty strong back then. So it took him a few months to get a bipartisan tax cut vote through. But also, I think this is important. During this first month, they were laying the groundwork of that bipartisan tax. Like Things were happening. They they, they were working on it. And at any rate, if you could say that the issue here is that Trump has not yet done a health care bill because he has a – uh, bipartisan process in place that like twenty Senate Democrats are actively engaged with, but it's going to take some time. And say, okay, fair enough. Although it's striking that he has nothing right. So when when Bill Clinton is elected president, he almost immediately signs the Family and Medical Leave Act, and that's because Senate Democrat uh, Democrats had a majority in Congress before the election. So they had a couple bills that they thought were really popular, a minimum wage increase, this Family Medical Leave Act that they passed and Bush vetoed. So then as soon as Bill Clinton becomes president, bam, bam, they pass him again. He signs them again. You know, those are not like earth-shattering pieces of legislation, but they make a real difference in people's lives. Uh, when Obama comes in, same deal. He gets right away Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, uh, so people um, – uh, can it, I think it extended the statute of limitations on uh, pay discrimination lawsuits and uh, an S-chip expansion that winds up not being remembered as a big deal because the Affordable Care Act was a much bigger deal, but like at the time was a multi-billion dollar expansion of healthcare to, to poor children, raised cigarette taxes. It seems to have saved thousands of lives by cutting smoking. Republicans' equivalent of that, their like quick snap passage is a bill – reversing an SEC rule that was going to make U.S.-based oil companies disclose to the public what bribes they were paying to foreign governments. Uh, On the one hand, that's a little bit ridiculous. On the other hand, like, it's it's just not important. Like, it's like the most random thing. And it's something Obama, I guess, got the SEC to rush out the door late in his administration. Uh, Probably a good idea. But, like, who knows, right? And that's because – The thing that they were supposed to have in the barrel ready to shoot right away was repealing Obamacare. And it turns out they don't have that. Well,
2: they – so they have it in the barrel but I think in a way that is like very difficult for them to use. So they had this 2015 repeal via reconciliation that was kind of similar to the types of things you were talking about, Matt, that had been passed by a Republican Congress that had been vetoed by President Obama – that if they had wanted to, I mean, they could have sent that to Trump's desk on um to some on January twentieth and had that be like the big win of the first month. So so they had the repeal, but they got very gun shy when they thought about the fact that would lead to 20 million Americans losing health coverage. And I think you saw like a lot of the debate about like should we do this as our big first month thing and that's when you had this like repeal and delay strategy which feels like eons ago at this point but like in december was like the hotness of like how they were going to pull off doing repeal in the first month so i think they they had the option like it was it was there it had been vetted by the parliamentarian they knew it was okay for reconciliation but they got and i think a lot of it had to do with like the su- they weren't expecting to actually have to use it and once they actually thought about Bloomberg quoted one legislator today talking about how this is a lot harder because they're actually shooting with real bullets at this point. And I think there was a realization that the thing they had lined up to be their big first month win was not actually a thing they were ready to do in a way like Clinton was with like the Family Medical Leave Act and those sort of things.
1: But I just don't – I mean it goes a little bit to the point. I don't think they really had it, right? I mean when – it just wasn't real. Like, right. They had this thing that they had not – Tested out in a state, like they could do it, right? In the same way that like House Democrats and Barack Obama came in had HR six seventy six, which was like a big single payer bill, but they couldn't actually pass HR six seventy six, right? They just like didn't have the support. And I think Trump to have the support. The thing that I think you were going to mention as well, Matt, is that in addition to all this, the stimulus got signed this right. week, which was a huge legislative undertaking. Now, it was a crisis scenario. Things were going – I mean there's a reason that happened so quickly. It, the stimulus would not have normally happened that quickly and, and obviously it, in a normal scenario wouldn't have happened at all. But it was huge. It had the race to the top. It, in addition to just straight money, tax cuts, it had the race to the top program. It had massive infrastructure investments. It had all these long-term investments in green energy. The massive
2: it was, investments in electronic health records. Yeah, massive electronic giant. health
1: records. So – and Matt, you wrote a good piece on this. But there's another piece today. Michael Shear in, in The New York Times wrote a piece about the – just chaos in the Trump administration. And I thought this was a really interesting comment. He wrote – The West Wing uses the chaos as a tactical weapon, believing that the flurry of early morning presidential tweets, controversial statements during the afternoon briefing and surprise executive actions work to keep their adversaries, the media and others off balance. And I think others is an important word there because the others who are being kept off balance are the Trump administration and members of Congress who are Republicans. There is so much chaos, so much crazy, so much controversy that They are not being able to systematically do the work to like vet out policy, to get their nominees confirmed, to build consensus around difficult things. And in the absence of that, consensus is falling apart by the day. I mean, I, I think that you, this is probably a sense I think you have too. Republicans feel to me much less united on health care than they did a month ago.
2: Well, I think one of the things I spend some of my time on Capitol Hill right now and something that has become a very common occurrence is reporters – Asking legislators about Trump tweets that they haven't seen yet, so right. so think this thing happens where Trump will tweet something, and it's exactly I, I mean it speaks to that quote perfectly. And legislators will come out of a meeting, and all of a sudden they'll have a reporter reading them a Trump tweet, and they had no idea that this was coming. Like, mm-hmm. and it's like actually like a big shift. Like for example, it's Trump saying, "I want to have Obamacare repeal done within the next few weeks," and this is like literally the first. They've heard about it is from some reporter who was reading Donald Trump's Twitter feed. So it's like a very real force and very different than anything I've seen covering Capitol Hill for a while.
1: And something I've been hearing on the Hill is that because of this, there's no planning going on, not just not real planning on something like Obamacare. There's nothing uh, on – there's nothing happening that is like the Senate Finance Committee process to build the health care bill right now, which is already underway in in Obama's term. But I was talking to folks on the Hill and they were saying in April – The government has to do a debt ceiling increase. It has to do its budgeting. Nobody knows how to do that right now. There's not real work even happening on it. I I was hearing that. The Republicans aren't planning on this stuff effectively because they don't know what Trump wants. So so Senate and House Republicans are not doing a good job planning just for the basic functioning questions because Trump doesn't have his team in place and they don't know what he wants because they're not planning. The Democrats aren't planning because they don't know what's coming up on the calendar. So everybody is just, and Matt, you have this great line in there, everybody's
0: extremely busy, but nobody is getting anything done. <laughs> yeah, I, I would note that I, I think the Trump team's well, one thing I would notice to talk about the Trump team as if it is a unified team is, I think, at this point, obviously very misleading. Right. Um, all administrations are composed of individual human beings. Uh, in particular, Donald Trump's administration contains a lot of people whose resumes were obviously forwarded uh, through the Heritage Foundation to Mike Pence's office, and then they were slotted in to various kinds of jobs, and they, like, say they do housing policy and the Domestic Policy Council um, or, you know, various other things. Um, And then there's, like, the people who Donald Trump, you know, like, wants to talk to and and wants to listen to. Um, and, And one polite fiction that I frequently see in headlines and leads of stories from Hill reporters is that quote-unquote, the Trump agenda is, like, not moving on Capitol Hill. Um, But what's not moving on Capitol Hill is the Paul Ryan agenda. Um, There has never been any evidence at all that, like, Donald Trump personally cares at all whether – Kevin Brady's comprehensive tax reform bill passes, whether entitlements are reformed. And to an extent – He's against entitlements being reformed. Right. To an extent, you can view at least part of the Donald Trump project as being about grinding down the ideological zeal from the Republican Party. Like there was uh, – during the winter, during the transition, there was some buzz about Paul Ryan's years-long quest to uh, privatize Medicare. And, like, was he going to try that? And he was saying, like, it's still on the table. He was saying, you know, you can't fix Obamacare without fixing the overall healthcare system. Like, it's all one big thing. And Donald Trump, through not Donald Trump personally, but like they have gotten Ryan to just completely drop that, right? There is like no more talk of that. It's completely off the table. But without there being a big fight, there was never a like Trump versus Ryan smackdown on Medicare. Uh, the White House and, and the House of Representatives didn't go to war over it. So there was no retaliation. And he has, in fact, gotten House Republicans to keep covering for him on corruption, collusion with Russia, all kinds of other stuff like that. Um, so to the extent that Trump can just keep throwing chum out there and getting people jazzed up about things and every once in a while give them a a handsome conservative judge to go vote for. Like, I think that's kind of smart, right? I mean, you can say, quote unquote, the Trump agenda isn't moving, but like Trump's agenda has nothing to do with any of this stuff. Like, Donald Trump every day charges the American taxpayer gigantic sums of money to lease office space from Donald Trump like the Donald Trump agenda is fine, it seems to me. Um, and, you know, and to the extent that he can get Republicans to like not drag him into contentious legislative battles, I think that's an OK outcome from his standpoint. And I also don't think he like would know how to put together an effective affirmative legislative agenda, you know, if he tried. But like, why would he try?
2: I think the one reason he would try, and this is like something I'm i curious to see how it plays out, is there's a feeling that Republicans were elected to do something and that they and one of the big somethings they were elected to do was repeal Obamacare and that they feel committed to delivering on that goal. I think there's actually a really interesting political question of like how that I don't know, like how angry would people get if, if they didn't do that, if they were able to just like live in this permanent state of like seeming chaos of seeming busy without actual legislative change. I don't know that legislators would be super upset about that. I know a lot of Republicans, after watching what's going on with town halls um after like thinking through why health policy is difficult, are quite hesitant about how how they do this without sustaining a large um a large political hit. I, I think they are looking at these town halls right now and they want to tell themselves that they're not a big deal, but they're also thinking of, the town halls in 2009 and the people who are no longer there who were picketed at the town halls in 2009. So, I mean, I think that is the reason, you know, why try is there is a feeling that in order to get reelected, they want to deliver on some of the legislative objectives they they had campaigned on. But I don't know. I think it's still a little bit open about how strong that desire is and like how much people care about it, like how much you could like for example, there was some reporting that Reason had earlier today that the Trump administration had taken some regulatory steps to weaken the individual mandate. Like I don't know how much you can use those to declare a win and then have this like seeming frenetic activity as like the rest of what you're doing.
1: I, I, I'm I'm with you. I, I think they conceptually would like to do things. and I But I really think – and this is why I read that sheer quote. They are not able to sustain the president's focus on anything. So I had this great conversation once with Nancy Pelosi and she she said – and I'm, I'm going to mangle this in, in the retelling. But she said, I call this – <laughs> it's just something like, I call this the town of the disposable. She said, everything is like milk. You leave it out and it spoils. And that's why what you got to do is you got to get the votes and then she like slammed her fist into her hand and then she got to take the vote. And what she was saying – and this was you know coming in context of the Obama agenda at the time – Was time is your enemy. The more time something sits out there, the more chance there is for interest groups to weigh in, the more there's fracturing among your own members. Like you've got to move fast. You've got to use your capital when you have it. Donald Trump is bleeding capital every single day. He is getting less popular. It started unpopular, getting less popular. He's having members of his administration resign. They've got a Supreme Court thing coming up. They've got normal congressional business is really difficult, like a debt ceiling thing. They're going to go out with the debt ceiling and they're going to have to get House Freedom Caucus members to vote for a very large increase in the debt ceiling. They have no idea how they're going to do that. They do not know what they're going to promise them. They don't know what they're going to give them. The guy who's running the OMB, Nick Mulvaney, Right? Nick yeah. Mulvaney. He is a debt ceiling doubter. Like, Who knows if they're even going to increase the debt ceiling? Like, th- something is going to go wrong here and meanwhile, I have never fully understood why Congress is so weak in this regard but Congress does. It really does sit around waiting for the president to focus and set the agenda and particularly the governing party in Congress waits for the president to to, to give them the terms of the debate. They were expecting and remember. Trump came out and said he would be releasing his own health care plan in a couple weeks. And then everybody's like, wait, no, he's not. But they were expecting that would happen. Uh, it didn't happen, of course. So now what you have is in the Senate, um, Cassidy and Collins have come out with this bill, which has a couple of other Republican senators, at least very interested in it. And one thing that bill does is it allows the state to keep the Medicaid expansion. In the House, the House Freedom Caucus came out and said anything that does not repeal the Medicaid expansion entirely, they will not vote for. So in the time in which Donald Trump has not given Republicans like something to focus around, the two camps, the kind of more moderate Republican camp in the Senate and the more extreme camp in the House, they have laid out mutually contradictory positions, making anything harder to do because now it's harder for them to back down. Similarly, on taxes, what they have is one, of course, no plan, but two – Donald Trump sort of randomly, for, uh, Sean Spicer, actually floated a border adjustment tax. Or Matt always gets mad to me. It's called what, Matt? It's a
0: destination-based cash flow tax.
1: So that getting floated has occasioned a very large mobilization by groups and corporations and lobbies that do not want that tax. So Walmart is calling people on the Hill. The Club for Growth, which doesn't like that tax, is organizing around it. There's, there's pressure coming on that particular idea. And meanwhile, again, the Trump administration... They are completely distracted. Donald Trump is not – he's not sleeping enough, right? You can tell that just by looking at his schedule and he's tweeting. He wakes up in the morning. He's obsessing over cable news. He's going in all kinds of different directions. It appears that allies of Steve Bannon are leaking terrible things about Ryan's Priebus to Breitbart. Allies of Ryan's Priebus appear to be leaking nasty things about Steve Bannon to the New York Times. The intelligence agencies are leaking against the Trump administration. There isn't focus right now. They they are – everybody like is running around. They have this refugee ban, which they are constantly out there talking about, yelling about. It's stopped by the courts. They have to do a Supreme Court thing. This is hard. It's a hard thing to do. They don't trust their own bureaucracy, which makes it extremely difficult to just vet proposals and build out ideas. Um, look, we're a month in. Six months in, this could all feel very different. It could all be very different. but. When Barack Obama took office, he had been in the Senate. His vice president was an extremely longtime legislator, like one of the longest serving senators in existence. He had as his chief of staff a member of the House Democratic leadership. He had as his top legislative liaison, Phil Shalero, who'd been chief of staff to Henry Waxman, who is considered the most technically savvy Democratic legislator. This was a, a group and they really came in and decided to you know, lay out a strong congressional agenda and try to pass it and they they really worked at it and even so, it took Obamacare a year. It almost didn't ha- – more than a year. It almost didn't happen. This stuff is difficult to do and they were popular amidst all of that. Meanwhile, you've got Trump. He he doesn't know what he's doing. Priebus has never been a legislator or a governor. His um, Steve Bannon has never served in government. They don't have a serious legislative liaison team in place yet. Mike Pence is sort of off – doing his own thing. The Republicans in the House and the Senate, they've not really legislated in a long time. So they don't have those muscles. Paul Ryan has never been speaker when they've actually been passing big pieces of legislation. And the more they wait and the more they just like let everything collapse, just the harder it gets. This stuff is incredibly difficult at the best of times. They are – it's not irretrievable for them. But my god, it's getting very hard to just see where they get like the will and the sustained focus and the popularity to do the kinds of hard
0: things that, in theory, they they want to do. I agree.
2: Is so it time for a white paper?
0: Yeah, let's let's white paper it up. We've been here for an hour. <laughs> All right, <laughs> we'll do a
2: quick white paper because um, we can't skip a good NBER paper. So this is a paper from two University of um, Kansas economists, David Slusky and um, Donna Ginthner. And they do a kind of interesting look at the Medicaid expansion. So I think a lot of us know the Medicaid expansion for expanding coverage to Americans. But one of the other things it did is for states that accepted the Medicaid expansion, it changed some of the rules around Medicaid. It used to be in order to qualify, Medicaid would look at your assets. If you have a house, if you have a car, if you have all these things, those could disqualify you from Medicaid. Um, So you saw this kind of odd phenomena of um, medical divorces, where basically if you were um, married and you had some kind of catastrophic incident that you wanted to qualify for Medicaid. For example, if you needed long-term care would be one of the reasons. Like you wanted to qualify for some, you know, long-term nursing care. You would hear stories and, you know, I've heard them from a friend of people divorcing. So one person has no more assets left and they can pass the Medicaid asset test. So what these researchers did is they looked at – the changes with Medicaid expansion, which got rid of the asset test. It said, as long as you're below an income, we're not going to look at your assets. And they saw that um, divorces among people between 50 and 64 declined by 5.6 percent, that you actually saw a pretty significant decline in what appear to be medical divorces, kind of holding all other things equal. It's an interesting result of like how we—it's a pretty small change in policy. It's not like the big thing Medicaid expansion did, but it Kind of to me, I thought it was interesting because it showed how changing this one tiny rule, like it actually, it matters to people who who are married who who want to qualify for Medicaid but are not able to because of these assets, and um, kind of shows if we go back, you could see a you know rise in medical divorces again that people will be separating because that's how you play by the rules of Medicaid. The
1: the size of the effect was a sorry, I just want to make sure I understood that right. It was a five percent change in the overall divorce rate.
2: Yes. Five point uh, six.
1: Five point six among. Or five point six percent
2: change. So it's a point zero nine, like percentage point, a point zero nine change. But if you like the rate changes, the rate declines by five point six percent. Okay, is that that makes clear? more sense to okay. me. Yeah, yeah. it's not a five point six percentage decline.
0: I mean, I you know I I think this was interesting. I mean, just it shows a couple reminders of a couple sort of like big truths about this, and like one of this is just that like health insurance policy is often discussed through the lens of like health policy and, and health outcomes. But it's just a really big deal in economic policy, right? Like it's just a lot of money at stake and it really alters people's financial well-being and their um, decision-making around these kinds of things, right? Like this divorce point is just like one interesting thing. But you know we, we've all seen stories about people sort of like deliberately spending down assets to qualify for Medicaid. There's a lot of Financial shenanigans sort of in and around here. And the other is that, you know, the whole story with with Medicaid and and long-term care is like it's a really powerful constant set of reminders about the like promise and peril of means testing programs, right? It's people don't like paying taxes. You want to get things done in a cost-effective way. Um, The reaction to say, well, look, we shouldn't give services to people who don't really need the money is like super understandable. I see why people write bills that way. Um, But the interaction with a program that's like, aha, you could get this great government service, like if only you were divorced. It's a bummer. Like, in so many ways compared to, like, here's a nice park you can go to, right? And they don't, like, ticket you at the park or be like, you could really afford to pay 10 cents to come into the park, man. Like, let's let the poor people use the park for free because, like, that would suck. And, like, Medicaid has a a lot of these dynamics around it. I think, like, we saw this in in, like, your reporting from Kentucky. You see it in this, like, wonky research about the— the debates, that it's like it, it's really valuable. It provides a lot of like help to people who get well, it. Yeah. And then that makes it really mm-hmm. odd around the qualification. Well, and
2: I think one of the things that's unique about these medical divorces is they kind of phrase that these are things that are expensive for anyone. Like you could be someone with a very good salary, but sustained medical care, sustained admission to Um, A nursing home is not something Medicare is going to cover. It's something private insurance will likely be quite limited. I think I'm not going to get the number right, so I won't guess a number. But I know Medicaid finances a lot of long-term care in the United States. And I think the reason, like you're saying, Matt, that means testing feels a little funny for long-term care financing is because most of us can't afford it. Like most of us do not have the money to support someone else in a long-term care situation for months Or years, and these are kind of those medical expenses that even if you're someone who's like considered well off, you just couldn't finance on your own. Which is why you see these medical divorces and people trying to get below the the asset um, limit for Medicaid. And kind of why it feels like this side of it. I, I think the long term care side feels different to me than some of the other parts of Medicaid, where it feels like it makes sense to means test and limit to lower income Americans. The long term care side, it. Something that's very, very difficult to afford unless you are quite wealthy.
0: The idea, right, is that if you have money saved up, you should like spend it down mm-hmm. on the long term care until the government needs to chip in. Right. It's, it's like in effect, a kind of like a high deductible right. long term care policy where like the government doesn't give you the long term care while you're sitting on money. You spend your own money on the long term care then you reach a point where you can't afford it. And then you get the long term care. The divorce is kind of like exploiting a loophole in that interior loophole. But it's a when you step back, right, it it does become as you say, it's like, look, this is not a thing that a typical middle class person can actually afford over the long term. So like, what is the purpose, what is like the social function of saying, well, we're going to like drain down everybody's savings and then the government steps in. Now, it makes the program more affordable, you know, I mean, which has its own real value, both politically and and substantively, but it's a very odd mechanism.
1: And this is just, I think, a general problem across a lot of government programs where they're in play for a while and then you realize you have these loopholes, you have these moments of drop-offs, you have these really bad marginal tax rate incentives if you sort of add them up. And one thing that we are not good at doing in US government is putting to the side our overall debates about is Medicaid good or is social security good or is the tax system good and just saying, hey, look, we all read this thing as a problem and let's clean it up a little bit. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is full of this kind of stuff, right? In theory, you put a very complicated law into play. You see what happens for a couple of years and then you go in and you clean it up. You you take what you know and you you iterate. And that just doesn't happen. Congress has become a lot less efficient than it used to be. Uh, Just in general, it passes less bills. It's less productive. Uh, It is much more polarized and a lot more is getting overwhelmed by bigger fights that you're not allowed to do anything to fix Medicaid until you can address like somehow settle the Medicaid expansion question once and for all, which you're not going to do. So we have a lot of programs like, like this one, which it would be easy to just make them a little bit better. It wouldn't cost a lot of money. It wouldn't be changing anything big. It wouldn't be settling any great debate. It would just be cleaning up some administrative problems in the programs, which look like we, we're all part of Vox. I mean Vox is a lot smaller than Medicaid. But there's all kinds of things we have to change just in a daily way, processes, procedures, you know, management structure, whatever. And the government has never done that very well and it does that worse and worse and worse in a way that's really a problem.
2: And I think the ACA was a space to like make some of those changes. You could like kind of throw them in there cuz so yeah. much was happening like another one I was writing about today was this end of lifetime limits, which is another example of I actually just got an email um, from someone whose kid had really expensive healthcare needs in 2001 and she maxed out her health insurance plan so she quit her job until she had until she had an income low enough <laughs> to qualify for Medicaid because her son needed medical care, and that's the only way she could get it. This is a kid with a tracheotomy tube who, you know, had some pretty serious health care needs, but was like a kid going to school, a kid who was active. And I think the ACA has a lot of those like small little cleanup things that people were able to toss in there because there was so much else going on. And each of them on their own is quite small, but each of them matters a lot to like people who are relying on them, like to the people who decided not to get a medical divorce, this small little regulatory change is actually, like, huge in their life and what Republicans decide to do on it will will really matter for, like, what their family life looks like.
1: That has been this week's episode of The Weeds. Uh, Thank you to my uh, co-speakers, co-podcasters, colleagues, Sarah Cliff, Matt Iglesias, thank you to our producer. Wait, I have an
2: announcement Oh, yes, we have an announcement. I'm
1: so sorry. Um, This is exciting.
2: Yes, this is a very exciting announcement. So, um, a few months ago, you guys might remember, I... Put out an episode of another podcast I'm working on that kind of is a reported podcast of how policy affects real life people, and uh, we are super excited to put out a second episode of that. Um, it'll be on Friday. It'll be about that story I reported in Kentucky that I think we have talked about a number of times that Matt just mentioned a few minutes ago. That is coming on Friday.
1: I'm excited for this on Friday. I'm excited for future episodes of this. It's going to be great. Another episode of the weeds. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, hopefully the world will not blow up between now and next week when we are back. Thank you to our producer, Feme Shapiro. The Weeds is a joint production of Vox.com and Panoply. Thank you for listening.